Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikawe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, Abayomi Azikawe. Uh, today is Sunday, uh, June the 18th, uh, 2023, and we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. And this weekend is uh, Juneteenth uh, weekend. The federal holiday is tomorrow on June uh, 19th in the United States. Juneteenth uh, represents a commemoration of the end of enslavement of African people inside the United States in 1865. And uh, we're going to, of course, uh, focus as well And this episode also features a regular Pan-African Newsweek report. Uh, we'll have dispatches on the recent announcement of a three-day ceasefire in the Republic of Sudan as the two military structures have battled for more uh, than two months. Sierra Leone is preparing for a national presidential election in this West African state. We'll have details on that story as well. Families of those injured in recent unrest in Senegal have called for justice uh, from the national government. And in Mali, uh, the people are voting on a referendum to adopt a new constitution leading to the restoration of civilian rule. In the second and third hours, uh, we continue our recognition of Black Music Month. Uh, we have tributes to the Morogoro Jazz Band of the United Republic of Tanzania. Along, along with the tribute to uh, Fela Kuti of the uh, Federal Republic of Nigeria and uh, Rosetta Tharp, uh, who is, uh, of course, of the United States. And uh, we're going to start out uh, with the Morogoro Jazz Band. The Morogoro Jazz Band uh, was also known as the KZ Morogoro Jazz Band, KZ uh, standing for Kuliko Zoti, a Kiswahili word for better than the others. Uh, the band was a seminal uh, muziki wa dansi, a dance band from Morogoro, Tanzania. The band originally played live at the clubs and bars of Morogoro and became very popular during the 1960s and 70s, receiving considerable airplay from Tanzanian radio stations. The leader of the band was guitarist Mbaraka when Shihi, uh, who dropped out of school to join the band in 1965. Coincidentally, the band was formed the same year as when Shishi was born in 1944. The original lineup of the Morogoro Jazz Band featured Makala Kendamili, uh, Joseph Thomas, Saif Ali, uh, Daudi Ali, and Shabana Wambe. Salim Abdullah, uh, who would later found the Cuban Marimba Band was also an early member of the Morogoro Jazz Band. When Sheehy uh, left the Morogoro Jazz Band in 1973 to found another very successful Tanzanian dance band called the Super Volcano. And, of course, um, there was the rhythm and blues, uh, British and pop music, which was also uh, incorporated uh, in uh, the sounds of uh, the new super volcano band, the Morgro Jazz Band, created a sound that was a fusion of many different influences, uh, including the Tarab, 
the Kenya Benga, the Cuban uh, Sucus or Cuban Rumba, also known as Congolese Rumba, and uh, rhythm and blues from uh, North America, and of course, uh, rock and pop music from the United Kingdom. Although uh, the band was originally acoustic, it was the inclusion of the electric guitar that catapulted the band to the forefront of the Tanzanian music scene uh, during uh, the 1960s. And we're going to listen to uh, the Morgo Jazz Orchestra. And, of course, this is um, from uh, the album entitled Wanawachizia Mfulu Liso Wa Muziki. Let's listen in. Ma pensiani te Oh, 
Kuda 
Pindusi, ukalale pema kiongo 
Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, the music of the United Republic of Tanzania. And that was from the Moral Girl uh, Jazz Band, uh, one of the classic uh, Pan-African orchestras uh, to emerge during uh, the uh, 1940s. Uh, This music uh, recorded during the 1970s that we just heard. And, of course, uh, the Moral Girl Jazz Band, one of the uh, legendary um, bands to emerge uh, from uh, the United Republic of Tanzania over the decades. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal, worldwide radio broadcast, a special edition of our program. Right now, we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment. Our lead story uh, deals with the current situation in the Republic of Sudan. Sudan's warring parties began another attempt at ceasefire earlier today after more than two months of brutal fighting and ahead of an international conference to raise funds for humanitarian assistance. Residents in the capital of Khartoum and its neighboring city of Abdurman reported relative calm in the first hours of the ceasefire this morning after fierce clashes were reported the previous day. Sudan descended into chaos after fighting erupted in mid-April between the military led uh, by General Abdel Fattah al-Bihan and paramilitary rapid support forces uh, commanded by General Mohammed Hamdan Dagalo. The three-day truce uh, that began uh, this morning came ahead of a pledging conference uh, the United Nations and other nations uh, will uh, hold uh, Monday to raise uh, funds to cover Sudan's humanitarian needs. The the UN says it received less than 16% of the $2.57 billion required to help those in need in Sudan during this year. Another $470 million is needed to support refugees in the Horn of Africa region, it says. The United States and Saudi Arabia announced the ceasefire agreement Yesterday, uh, both have led concerted diplomatic efforts to stop the war over the past two months. The U.S. and Saudi Arabia said in a joint statement that the military and the RSF agreed to halt fighting and refrain from seeking military advantage during uh, the ceasefire. And in other news uh, taking place uh, in West Africa uh, with mounting frustration due to an alien economy, Rising unemployment and looming deadly protests, Sierra Leoneans are heading to the polls on uh, this coming Saturday, June 14th, to select their next president. Thirteen people are vying for the top job in the West African country, but experts say it's likely to be a two-course race between incumbent President Julius uh, Maada Dio, elected in 2018 and fighting for his second term, and Samura Kamara, the head of the All People's Congress Party, Sierra Leone's main opposition camp. The winner needs 55% of the vote to clinch victory in the first round, or it goes into a runoff within two weeks. More than 3 million people are registered to vote in the country's fifth presidential election since the end of an 11-year brutal civil war more than two decades ago, which left Tens of thousands of people dead and destroyed the country's economy. Sudan had witnessed two peaceful transfers of power since then, from the ruling party to the opposition party. 
bill has been facing increasing criticism because of debilitating economic conditions. Nearly 60% of Sierra Leone's population of more than 7 million are facing poverty, with youth unemployment being one of the highest in West Africa. Multiple deadly anti-government protests rocked the country with calls for Bill to step down, fueled by a rise in cost of living. The latest one in August left dozens dead, including security forces. Now, as of April, uh, Sierra Leone, uh, which has one of the world's weakest currencies, saw inflation rise to more than 43% uh, from a high of more than 41% in March. Uh, and the exchange rate uh, against the U.S. dollar is under pressure, according to economic analysis. The election also comes during a surge of regional political upheaval with deadly clashes between supporters of the opposition leader, uh, who uh, Usman Sanko, and police in Senegal, as well as military coups in Burkina Faso and Mali. Thus, Sierra Leone, having a peaceful vote is of great importance says uh, many analysts. We've seen this democratic backsliding in the region. So if Sierra Leone's uh, presidential election is free, fair, and credible, it could be a bellwether uh, for regional democracy, said Jamie Hitchin, a political analyst focused on Sierra Leone and an honorary research fellow at the University of Birmingham. This week's vote is expected to be a tight race. It will be a reverse of the 2018 presidential elections when Bill at the time representing the opposition party, faced Kamara uh, from the then ruling party, whom the former president had handpicked as his successor. Bill, at the time, <clears throat> nearly beat Kamara in a runoff by a margin of less than 5%, mainly because of support in the southern and eastern districts. Kamara garnered support from the north and the west regions of the country. And uh, you're listening to the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. In other news, the family of one of the victims of the protests earlier this month in Senegal say they want justice. Their son, uh, Kadim Ba, was killed on the same day political opposition leader Usman Sonko was convicted of corrupting youth and given a two-year prison sentence. I went to the dispensary hospital and found him on a stretcher. I arrived there. He was covered with a sheet. When I entered the room, I lifted the sheet, and I told him, Kadim, his name. He didn't reply. Then I felt something. I started to cry. Then they rolled up the sheet, and I saw a bullet hole in his chest. That's when I knew my son was gone. I was so moved. I cried a lot, really, recounted Ibrahim Ba, father of Kadim Ba, who was killed uh, during the protest earlier this month. Several people were reported shot with live ammunition by men wearing civilian clothes who appeared to be fighting alongside the police, according to protesters and human rights organizations. Uh, Sinabu Jope, uh, mother of Kadim Ba, demands action from the authorities in Senegal. She says, find the person who killed him and bring him to justice is the only thing I want. They killed a person they, did, they don't know. By Allah, they don't know who they killed. The person who did this must be brought to justice. It is God's will to take the life of Kadim, but justice must be done, said the grieving mother. According to the human rights group Amnesty International, the death toll is double compared to the similar protests 
of two years ago in 2021. The death toll has quit, quit double compared, has quite double compared to uh, 2021 because of the response of the police and the authorities that not only responded violently with the police and the gendarmes, but uh, allowed uh, private citizens to get involved in the repression, denounced uh, C.B. Dasama, executive director of Amnesty International in Senegal. Violence flared during the pro-Sanko demonstrations last month and this month. Participants destroyed shops, gas stations, cars, and buses, lining the streets, barricading roads, and lighting tires on fire. And finally, in Mali, uh, voters have cast ballots on a new draft constitution today in a referendum that the country's coup leaders say will pave the way towards holding national elections uh, next year. But that critics have called a decaying tactic, a delaying tactic uh, for him to extend his time in power. After casting his vote, uh, Colonel Asimi Guaita, head of the junta uh, governing the country, thanked the armed forces and saluted the resilience of the Malian people. Guaita called the Malians to remain united, whatever the outcome of the referendum. I would also like to launch an appeal to all Malians, whatever the outcome of the referendum results, to hold hands and form a sacred union around Mali, the president of the transitional government said. I am convinced that this referendum will pave the way for a new Mali, a strong and efficient Mali serving the well-being of our people, he said. Earlier this week, uh, Imam Mahmoud Diko, an opponent of the military junta, invited his supporters to a large hall in Bamako on yesterday to ask them to vote against it. Malians who voted uh, today said they hoped the Constitution's approval would be a step in the right direction for a country marred by Islamic extremist violence for a decade. The proposed draft Constitution creates a two-chamber parliament, the National Assembly and the Senate. Until now, the country has had only one National Assembly. The draft also consolidates the position of the President of Mali, a move that has drawn much political debate. With that, uh, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of uh, the Pan-African Journal. In concluding this segment of our program, we want to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998. Since that time period, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in hundreds of newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to uh, the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, all you need to do is uh, go to our website, and uh, that is at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And uh, if you'd like to have access to today's Pan-African Journal, special uh, worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Sunday, June 18th, uh, 2023, uh, just go to our website, and that's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash 
Pan-African Journal. We will take a break. We'll be back uh, with more of our program for this week. The music of uh, the Pointer Sisters uh, with the track entitled Love Too Good to Last. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast for Sunday, June 18, uh, 2023. Uh, this, in fact, uh, Juneteenth uh, weekend. Uh, tomorrow is the official uh, federal holiday for Juneteenth. And, of course, uh, it represents the freedom 
from enslavement uh, of the African-American people in the United States. June is also uh, Black Music Month, and right now we want to move into a audio documentary on the lifetimes and contributions, some aspects of it, uh, of Fela Analapo Kuti uh, from the Federal Republic of Nigeria. Let's listen in. This is the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast. The king. When you're king of African music, you're the king. Because music is the king of all professions. That may tomorrow, next month, I'll be president of this country. I will be president of this country. I know that. Who is Fela? Some say he's the greatest musician in Africa. Others that he's a prophet. Still others that he's a rebel, a revolutionary tribune. Once his name was Fela Ransom Kuti, the name of a slave. Since 1977, he calls himself Fela Anakulapo Kuti, the name of a king. To support his candidacy in the presidential elections of 1983, he created his own party, the MOP, the Movement of the People. The youth are not interested in the election anyway. I think they would be interested if MOP takes part, you know. And it would be wise for them to register MOP quickly because if they don't register MOP this time, I think there will be trouble. But the point is, knowing this government, they will not register me. They don't intend to register me. They are trying to make the government into a two-party government where they won't be able to register any more parties. They want to make it like a law that no the government cannot have more than two parties in the country. The people's minds have gone low. Food. No food, no water, no light. No government. 
to the people are aging. There's no solid situation. The roots have been lost. Our senators are going to America every day and coming back. And nothing is happening in my country. And the newspapers are crying, I'm robbers, thieves. So the public thinks they have to take care of themselves. So any thief they think they see, they lynch, they kill by themselves. This is wrong. It's very un-African. Africans don't behave like that. These are the kind of uh, criminal behavior, criminal atmosphere our government has put in the country. People not having steady minds. But I see a future. I see a future in my own political party. Panamericanism is in the minds of everybody now. Subconsciously. Everybody knows they have to be Africans now. in Nigeria. His father was a Protestant preacher and a school principal, a severe, rigorous man in the British manner. His mother was the great lady of Nigerian independence, a militant attracted by the communist cause. She even met Mao Zedong. The ransom cooties were not inhibited by the English settlers. They were also totally indifferent about upholding the old African traditions. They provided young Fela with a typical Western education. In the early 60s, Fela was a student in London. His love then was music, not politics. In his generation, African consciousness would suffer a strange detour through the black American movement. black world shared the dream of Martin Luther King. A few months later, Kennedy was assassinated. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream 
that one day on the red hills of Georgia, sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners, will they be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood? I have a dream. In 1969, Fela sails for the United States. He'll stay 10 months. Black power is at its peak after the disappointment of the various civil rights movements, the Watts riots, the assassination of Martin Luther King. the autobiography of Malcolm X over and over again. He wants to become a hero, a black hero. He writes his first protest songs. Across the ocean, 3,800 miles away from home, Fela discovers Africa. When Fela returns to Nigeria, the Biafra War is raging. It will go on for two and a half years and leave one million dead among the ruins. As wars go, this one is particularly absurd. The division of Africa among the colonialist powers failed to consider ethnic frontiers. The Biafran rebels attempt to proceed only to be ruthlessly subdued by federal forces. Fela's mistrust of new African governments, especially that of Nigeria, is born from this war. It's a mistrust that will soon grow into open war. You know, there are many, many dangerous people in Africa. The president of Nigeria is dangerous. Shagari is dangerous. As a, hum as a person himself, he's weak. But his surroundings, his, his administration is dangerous. He is not as dynamic to be as dangerous, but his setup is dangerous. Because they all say he's great and everything, but underneath, he's pulling the whole continent, you understand? So he's dangerous. You know, he has nothing to offer. He doesn't make big statements as such, but it's in Nigeria they come and do apartheid committee. Apartheid this, you know, a meeting in about Namibia in Nigeria, everything Nigeria takes on its head. You see, but this country is a Gestapo country. How can Nigeria be talking about South Africa? You see, South Africa is better than Nigeria. I know so. But look, we are saying whites are mistreating blacks in South Africa. Okay, that is bad. That is racism. We have a reason to do it. Then blacks are mistreating blacks in Nigeria. What's the reason? That's worse. Police beat people on the streets like dogs. They don't... I mean, in South Africa... I mean, they do it, but they know they face public... Um, public uh, criticism. So they, they watch themselves to do it. But in Nigeria... They say Nigeria is against apartheid. Nigeria is this. Nigeria is a good... In America, talks about Nigeria like Nigeria is the greatest African country. 
But Nigeria is the worst African country. We have the worst things are happening. Worse than South Africa. Lagos, capital city of Nigeria. The country is the white elephant of Africa. 100 million inhabitants, which means that one African out of four is a Nigerian. It's the sixth largest oil producer in the world. But these billions of dollars must first pass through the pockets of a handful of chiefs and ex-generals. You can get a hi-fi set and cellophane-wrapped bread anywhere in Lagos. And you can also drive through miles and miles of suburbs that have no water, electricity, nor sewers. An enormous underground traffic in weapons has been taking place since the Biafra War. The number of holdups became so high that the government decided to hold public executions. Thieves were shot once a month on Sunday on the most popular beach in Lagos. Everybody run, run, run. Everybody scatter, scatter. Some people love some bread. Someone nearly died. Someone just died. Police, they come, hammy, they come. Confusion everywhere. Seven minutes later, all don't cool down, brothers. Police don't go away, army don't disappear. Them lips sorrow, tears and blood. Them regular face, Them lips sorrow, tears and blood. Them regular face, Them regular trademark. Them regular trademark. We fear to fight for freedom. We fear to fight for liberty. We fear to fight for justice. We fear to fight for happiness. We always get reason to fear. We no one die. We no one wound. We no one quench. We no one go. I get one child. My mother for house. My father for house. I won't build a house. I don't build a house. I no one quench. I won't enjoy. I no one go. So policeman go slap your face, you know, go talk. Army man go weep, your yash, you go, they look like donkey. Go Asia, they do them own only that they have for nothing. South Africa, they do them home. Them lips sorrow, tears and blood. Them regular trademark. Them regular trademark. Them regular trademark. Regular trade mark. That is why everybody run, run, run. Everybody scatter, scatter. Some people love some bed. Someone nearly died. Police they come, I mean they come. Confusion everywhere. Ah, that's so. Time when they go, time no wait for nobody, like that. Ah, but police go to come, I mean go to come, with confusion, inside, like this. This is the famous Victoria Beach, where so many thieves were executed. Since the return to civilian government three years ago, the shootings have stopped. The sea, however, keeps washing up bodies. Lagos, 
the most dangerous city in the world. In broad daylight, a gang of thugs may come out of nowhere, wielding a board stuck with nails or a broken bottle, and burst your tires, rip open your suitcase, or gouge your eyes out. It's 10 o'clock at night in Ikeja, a suburb 18 miles from downtown, close to the international airport. This is one of the most violent spots in Lagos. Every night, around midnight, Fela arrives at the shrine in his little bus with his singers and dancers. The shrine is Fela's nightclub, but it's also a real shrine, as you will soon realize. The musicians have been playing for hours. The audience is already wound up. People come from all over the country. There are workers as well as students, cops, thieves, the unemployed, and even government ministers traveling incognito. And no one can say whether they've come to listen to the inflammatory speeches of the prophet or to rock to his very special Afro beat. At seven in the morning, day breaks and the music stops. Looking barely tired, Fela and his women leave the shrine. Oh, yeah. They reach Kalakuta, the great communal house where they all live, a few blocks away. In ten years, Fela has never left this working-class suburb, even when he had money or power. Here, he is loved and respected as a new breed of African chief. The Kalakuta Republic, one-story barracks for Fela, his lieutenants, and his women. Next to it, a series of smaller huts for bodyguards, handymen, transients, and everyone else. A hundred people live here permanently. This is Fela's republic, or rather, his kingdom. When he travels abroad, he charters an entire Boeing to transport his close friends, his orchestra, and his 15 wives. It's very important for a man to marry many women. Because a man goes for many women in the first place. Like in Europe, when a man is married, he goes after... When the wife is sleeping, she go, he goes out and fucks around, man. You should bring the women to the house, man, and live with him. And stop running around the streets. 
You see, that is what a man is supposed to do. A man is not supposed to run around the streets after women. You see, women should be in his home. In 1977, Fela married his 27 singers and dancers in one fell swoop, according to the Yoruba ritual. They are now called the queens. In the African tradition, you are taught not to be jealous. Africans, please listen to me as Africans, and you non-Africans, listen to me with open mind. Suffer, suffer for once, Amen. enjoy for heaven, Amen. Christians go the yab, in spirit to heaven, Muslims go they call, Allahu Akbar, suffer, suffer for once, enjoy for heaven, Christians go the yab, in spirit to heaven, Muslims go, they call Allahu Akbar. Open your eye everywhere. Ask the shop now, maybe to go to my enjoyment. Be my money, Ask the shop now, maybe to go to my enjoyment. Be my money, and Islam. They are only artificial religions, artificial. And the reason why Islam and Mus and Christianity is spread all over Africa, we know, is to exploit the people. All Christians think like white, uh, like European, like English and Americans, and all Muslim people think like Arabs. So they're just diverting the African minds from their roots, that's all, you know. And Africans must know. You see, they must have the original one. And somebody must spread the knowledge of this. And I think I have the knowledge. The whole thing is that this world is a world of higher forces. And people must realize it. And you do it by yourself in your home, by knowledge of your culture, or your background of your family, or your people. It's not through Christianity or Muslim. They're deceiving the people. When Fela began to preach a return to traditional religion, it was in search of a deeper African identity. It was a cultural provocation, an intellectual move. But in the spring of 1981, the spirits really visited Fela's house. Since this revelation, a dialogue with the other world takes place every day. At the shrine, around two in the morning, right in the middle of the show, Fela suddenly asks for silence and performs a rite on behalf of the main Yoruba spirits, Shango, Ogun, Ifa. The same great spirits that are found in America, in voodoo, in Afro-Cuban and Brazilian cults.
On the altar, there are also the portraits of Malcolm X, of Nkrumah, the hero of African independence, and also that of Fela's own mother, who since her death has become the spirit of rain. people this many times. So I'm going to prove them wrong and prove myself right. Because now I'm 44, I'm getting younger. Because I'm doing it right. I can play music for 10 hours. I'm never tired. I'm getting younger because the spiritual life of music that I've led rightly is helping me now. Too many people this time now because I don't apologize for doing this time here. I don't Whether you like or you know like, after you hear this to talk, after you like or you know like, after you hear this to talk, if you like it good, yeah, yeah. if you know like you hang, yeah, yeah. if you like it good, yeah, yeah. if you know like you hang, yeah, yeah. if you hang you go die, yeah, yeah. you die for nothing, yeah, yeah. you go carry your body, go police station, you die, he run police. Don't forget your legacy. 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 Don't forget your legacy.
In the African community, there are special women. We call them Yalaji. It means women who have special powers to see, to see the future, you know, to see front and back. You know, these are the special women. And people always, important people always have them around, you know, in the African home. Like I have my own Yalaji in my house, you know, who advises me what to do. Fela's wives are gone. There are 15 left. These women display a remarkable courage, for life is often difficult in the Kalakuta Republic. Fela may very well be one of the greatest music stars in all Africa. Nonetheless, he continues to exist in an entrenched camp, a genuine rebel zone, and those in power don't like it. On Friday, February 18, 1977, around noon, a thousand odd soldiers surround Kalakuta machine guns at the ready. The siege lasts 15 hours. There's some mortar fire. A generator explodes. The house catches fire. The rebels are forced to surrender. Fela and his mother are thrown out of the window. The soldiers behave like brutes. They rape the women after inflicting all kinds of outrages on them. They beat everyone with clubs. Fela and his tribe find themselves in prison. They will remain behind bars for one month before they are expelled from Nigeria. They take refuge in Accra, in Ghana. Now, there has not been anybody in this whole politics in Africa. Only two people have walked on the streets to follow people to where they are going. Nkrumah and my mother. What are you talking about? All this nonsense that you have hanging around here. They sit down in cars, man. This government threw my mother out of window, Mrs. Fumilayo Anikola Kukuti, who fought her blood for this country on the street. <laughs> 
Burn many houses. Burn my house too. Kill my mama. So I carry the coffin. I waka waka waka. Waka waka waka. I go up a lane. I go down down barrack. We reach them gate you. We put the coffin down. I pass on Jordy there. We put the coffin down. They no want to come. They no want to come. Who go want to take coffin? They must come. Not the bad 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 thing. But the hostilities between Fela and the Nigerian authorities never ceased. In the fall of 1981, following his third European tour, an intense press campaign is launched against him. This time, Fela is charged with assault with a weapon, a crime punishable by death. In December 1981, the army attacks Kalakuta again. The film crew was present on the day of the attack. There was no time to film it. Only to take photographs. In the blink of an eye, the army surrounds the house. Soldiers rush in, men capable of anything. A few tear gas bombs make it impossible to breathe. The place has to be evacuated. Then the soldiers go at it with a vengeance. They plunder the house. Their clubs spare neither pregnant women nor children. Fela himself is seriously beaten. The queens are whipped with chains. The entire tribe is dragged away. Once more, Fela finds himself in prison. Just saw the police. They brought about five loads of Land Rover, uh, this big, big lorry. That's all. They just jumped down, surrounded the house, started beating everybody, throwing tear gas. They rushed all of us inside the house, beating us. Later they left the big fella, they stole all our money, took all our property and We don't know what happened. We didn't even know what, what offense fella has made yet now because they just came, beating everybody up, and this is what they've been doing. from Five months old child for that matter. Throw him up and down. Oh my wife. We not what do we do? They mark me. They throw all my, my private part apart inside the bus. What have I done? And I'm pregnant. What have I done to this people? Seven months old pregnant. I've not done anything wrong. But in my head. They do what thing for, for us here in Africa. Nothing we could do about it. It's only fella that is up and they know fella is the only one preaching about all this injustice they've been doing. That's why they always want on fella. They are always after fella and they don't have anything to hold on him. Fella is an innocent man. A part of the Nigerian press takes up the old assault charge and deliberately attempts to portray Fela as public enemy number one. Fela represents a real threat to the establishment. He must be discredited at any price. But the charges seem such an obvious frame-up that Fela is freed on bail after ten days. The case is dismissed soon after.
He's still considering running for president in the 1983 election, even if he realizes there is only a small chance that his candidacy will be recognized. But the queens have kept their spirits high. The shrine is officially closed, yet Fela goes on. Nothing can stop him from singing or speaking. What is happening in Nigerian prisons is nothing short of Nazism. What they were doing in the concentration camps in Germany in 1940. I saw it with my eyes. They were flogging boys eight in the morning, 24 strokes. They put it on the body before they flogged them. And this is like this is not from court order. This is just what that enjoyment. When boys, when boys come, when boys just come from awaiting trial, they not, they never do, they bring them for prison. About 60, 60 years, they will pack them for one small room. Then they will tell me that they beat them. They will tell me they beat them first because they come for prison. I mean, everything is so nasty there, man. Then my brother, let me tell you what I experienced. I did for prison room. The basement, you just put up a toilet. So one word I come. You see the basin for toilet, though? You say that basin, you say bring them. Ah, we say, okay, we're not going to use this place, basin to shop. Now we take them, see them for toilet, take them peace. Not me, they talk, oh. But me, I not talk. Because I, I had too much pain in my body to talk. You know, all my body was just pain. One thing I want to assure them. If they think I'm going to change or compromise in my attitude, in my way of life, or in my expression or in my goal towards politics. They are making me stronger. And I'm much more stronger now. So, as, as a matter of fact, I'm surprised that I'm so well so quickly. You know, the kind of beating I got, you know. And you want to see the police beating? It's terrible. I'll show you. You must see it. Look at it. Yeah. See? Look my ears. Right out of my ears, man. See? Bad. All over my body, man. Top to bottom. They beat the shit out of me. But I say I didn't die. Because my name is Anikulakbo. I have death in my pouch. I can't die. They can't kill me. One, two, three, four. Yes, I give men's up, I'll 
Somebody that take his heart to where belong to another person. Top of the road on this side, the people they walk Off in the walkers, laborers, walkers, walkers, walkers. Them go they walk Inside bus, them go they. Motorcycle, them they ride. Plenty, plenty crowd. Inside this crowd, sometimes for one corner, sometimes for one street, you go there here. Kajam, 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 Because they are the senior 
exploiters of this universe, of this world. I've had ITT stories all over the world, man. I've had the stories in America, in Europe, in Chile, all over. But I didn't know what ITT was about until I met M.K. Wabiola himself. Then I see the evil, the kind of multinational evil they are trying to do. And I ask myself, what is multinational? All Nigerians are uninational. Why is some people multinationals? You see, then the question arises, what can I do about this? And Mr. M.K. Wabiola, some time ago, went to report to the police on the 27th of August, 1979, that I robbed his wife. The police came to investigate this matter. The police found that at that particular time, at 5 o'clock on that day, I was performing on television at about 150 miles away from where this robbery was supposed to take place. So I started on his ass. I wanted the police to charge him for false information. But the police and the government covered this whole story up. It's three years from now, four years. You see, so you can see the evil of these people. Then the two-pointed bill matter came, and I had to give evidence of it. Of it. So I saw roguery, criminality, robbery of the nation by a particular people, the government. You see what's happening in Nigeria? Uh -huh. Now you see, so I have to sing about it. And I have to sing straight for the people to understand. Them come teach us to carry sheets. Ah. Long, 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 long time ago. African man will not carry sheets. African man teach us to carry sheets. Many foreign as in the Africa carry all the money go. Many foreign companies in the Africa carry all the money go. Then go right in the news and dig this deep and carry all the money go. Then go right in the newspaper, carry drama African. Man. Them go pick one African man. 
a man with low mentality. And go be a million naira friend. To pick up the Abedi Dada. And go be a million naira friend. To become one you see left in cheek. Him go back from thousand naira friend. To become one you see left in cheek. Like rat they do them go they do from corner corner party party under under party party all the side party 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 what has America done to Africa that is bad? Bringing arms, dividing the people, wrong knowledge, bringing Christianity, bringing Jesus Christ, turning the people's minds upside down, bringing in fertilizers, doing shit, wanting to bring Western civilization here. America and England trying to brainwash Africans. They are the colonialists. They are the slave riders. Everybody knows Africa has to be united now to have any headway. But how is it going to happen? It's a good question. If I can take this country, then Africa is settled. Once there's a good government in one African country, the whole of Africa will be liberated. See, we're not in one good government. A straight and progressive, clean government that knows what it's doing. No diplomacy, no, no um, compromises, yeah, no agreement. No Marxism, Leninist, no capitalism, Africanism. of the future. Music is the weapon of the future. And something tells me I'm right. So I'm the president. 
only. Don't worry.
Uh, the music of Phyllis Hyman uh, from the track entitled No One Needs You More Than I Do. And this is the Pan-African Journal special worldwide radio broadcast for uh, Sunday, uh, June 18th. 2023, and uh, we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. And uh, close concluding segment uh, for this Black Music Month uh, special programming will focus on the lifetimes and contributions of Sister Rosetta Tharp, uh, born Rosetta Newbin on uh, March 20th of 1915. Uh, she made a transition on October the 9th of 1973. Uh, she was an African-American singer and guitarist. She gained popularity in the 1930s and 40s with her gospel recordings characterized by a unique mixture of spiritual lyrics and the electric guitar. She was the first great recording star of gospel music and was among the first gospel musicians to appeal to rhythm and blues and rock and roll audiences. She's been referred to as the original Soul sister and the godmother of rock and roll. She influenced early rock and roll musicians, including people such as Little Richard, Johnny Cash, Carl Perkins, Chuck Berry, Elvis Presley, Jerry Lee Lewis, and Eric Clapton. Pioneer in her guitar technique, uh, she was among the first popular recording artists to use heavy distortion on her electric guitar, opening the way to the rise of electric blues. Her guitar playing technique had a profound influence on the development of British blues in the 1960s. Her European tour uh, with Muddy Waters in 1964 was a stop in Manchester on May 7th is cited by British guitarists such as Clapton, Beck, and Keith Richards. Uh, willing to cross the line between sacred and secular by performing her music of light and darkness and nightclubs and concert halls with the big bands behind her. Tharp pushed spiritual music into the mainstream and helped pioneer the rise of popular gospel music beginning in 1938 with the recording Rock Me and with her 1939 hit This Train. Her unique music left a lasting mark on more conventional gospel artists such as Ira Tucker Sr. of the Dixie Hummingbirds. While she offended uh, some conservative churchgoers with her forays into the pop music field, she never left uh, gospel music. Tharp, uh, in 1934, released Down by the Riverside, was selected for the National Recording Registry of the United States Library of Congress in 2004, which noted that it captures her spirited guitar playing and unique vocal style, demonstrating uh, clearly her influence on early rhythm and blues performance and cited her influence on many gospel, jazz, and rock artists. Down by the Riverside was recorded by Tharp on December 2nd of 1948 in New York City and issued as a Decca record single. Her 1945 hit Strange Things Happening Every Day, recorded in late 1944, featured Tharp's vocals and resonator guitar with Sammy Price on piano bass, and drums. It was the first gospel record to cross over, hitting number two on the Billboard Race Records chart, the term then used for what later became the Rhythm and Blues charts in April of 1945. The recording has been cited as a precursor of rock and roll 
and alternatively has been called the first rock and roll record. In May 2018, Tharp was posthumously inducted into the Rock and Roll Harmon Hall of Fame as a early influence. And uh, we're going to move right now into uh, this documentary on uh, the contributions of the legendary Rosetta Tharp. She could play a guitar like nobody else. Nobody. I think Rosetta was a hugely important figure. You know, she was really unique as a guitar player. She had a big influence on somebody like Chuck Berry, who was one of the most influential guitar players in the world. She did incredible picking. That's what really attracted Elvis was uh, her picking, and he liked her singing too, but he liked that picking first <laughs> uh, because it was so different. She had a major impact on artists like Elvis Presley. When you see Elvis Presley singing um, early songs in his career, I think if you imagine that he is channeling Rosetta Tharp, it's not an image that I think we're used to thinking about when we think about rock and roll history. We don't think about the black woman behind the young white man. All the kids who grew up in the 40s and 50s knew of her as a superstar. And so I think it's very fair to say that there's a bit of her snuck up in all of rock and roll. Rosetta Tharp was born close by the mighty Mississippi on March 20th, 1915, in Cotton Plant, Arkansas. Katie Bell and Willis Atkins were cotton pickers. We don't know too much about Rosetta's father. What we do know about the father is that Willis Atkins could sing, and so it's possible that some of her gift of singing came from her father. Her mother um, was an evangelist for the Church of God in Christ. Her mother was incredibly passionate about the church. 
Rosetta's mother, Miss Katie Bell, was what we called her. She was a very traditional person. And basically, she was what, what we called a stomp-down Christian. I mean, that's one that enjoyed stamping her feet and patting her hands and celebrating what she believes in. And the reason that I think that Rosetta really became such a strong woman was because of her mother. Because her mother, again, was the same type of person. She had no fear. She would take her guitar, she would take her tambourine, she would take her chair, and she would sit outside and play for people and try to convert them and to get them to go to church. In 1921, Katie Bell left Rosetta's father to become a traveling evangelist for the Church of God in Christ. Taking the six-year-old Rosetta, she left Cotton Plant and joined the exodus of poor black southerners heading north. There was work in the great city of Chicago and also something even more crucial for the young Rosetta. The migrants brought the blues from the Mississippi Delta and jazz from New Orleans. Rosetta is often seen as a country singer, but that's a fallacy. Her major development occurred very early. She moved to Chicago when she was six. She and Mother Bell joined Robert's Temple Church of God in Christ and the Chicago Sanctified Church was bubbling with musicians and new songs. And so she was exposed to something that was new. It was not rural, it was an urban kind of religious singing. It was at that church where she first really started performing, um, where she was the main attraction. There's a great story that has her being put when she's six years old on the top of the piano, um, holding a guitar, being put there so that she could be seen by the congregation and playing and singing and charming everyone with her talent and her precociousness. There's something within me that just holding the rain. She told me that That's when she was a girl, not even 10, she was immediately seen as an all-purpose musician. She'd go to a revival, and she'd play her guitar. And if the people would get happy afterward and shout, she would drop the guitar and run to the piano and accompany them with her piano chords. And then she might get up and cut a couple of dance steps herself. She was a phenomenal showwoman. On life battlefield, when without pleading, my poor heart did heal. All I can say, praise God, there's something within. All through her teens, Rosetta was taken by her mother from city to city to perform in churches, tabernacles, and revival meetings, winning the hearts of thousands with her demure looks, angelic voice, and unique guitar style. Oh, have you that something, that burning desire? She soon became a nationwide celebrity within the church. That never does try. 
and this Philadelphia church is one of the first she performed in, back in the 1930s. Those who heard the young Rosetta were inspired for life. When I saw Rosetta, I was, a, I was about maybe 10 years old. Oh, she had, she had the most beautiful voice and the way she could speak to you. It made you feel different. You knew something was going on, even if you didn't understand really what it was. And that's the way it was with me because I was a child. Many of the hymns were expression of suffering and wanting to survive, many of them. And when she came and they saw the expression of her, the freedom that she expressed in her singing and dancing, it woke up the congregation. It focused them on something that was on the inside that they never gave expression to. Rosetta would start looking up. She didn't look at anybody. She looked up as if she saw God. And as if God was in her and she was communing with him rather than with a human being. In 1934, when Rosetta was just 19, her mother married her off to a preacher, the Reverend Tommy Tharp. For the next four years, she and Tommy worked for the Church of God in Christ. Her job was to draw the crowds while he preached from the pulpit. But in spite of her mother's good intentions, the marriage was not working out. Look up! Look up! Sister Rosetta in the summer of 1937. She seemed a little bit glad that she was married, but she didn't seem to be very happy. And that's the reason I took to her. Because, you know, I wanted to just make her happy, make her feel as special as she really was. But I didn't have any idea that she and Tommy wouldn't make it. He was a tyrant. Um, from what my parents used to say and talk about, uh, he seemed to um, come out of the real, real sub-old school and believed in the kind of almost caveman-like attitude towards women. I found that he really wanted her because he figured they could use her to make money to help him make a living, and that's the truth. I, I hate to say that. But uh, that's the way it turned out to be. She was just a meal ticket. She was a performer, and he used her to bring people to his churches, and he would put her up to sing. And after a few years, she had enough, and she said, you know what, I'm going to leave all of it. And she made that big jump. <laughs> Let down by the first of several men in her life, Rosetta left her husband and took her mother to New York to forge a new life for herself. My husband and I, we separated 
a little later, too. So she said, well, sister, why don't you come to New York and stay with me and Mama for a little while until you decide what you want to do? So I did. I went there. We would sit up all night long and sing, and she'd pick the guitar softly, and we'd both sit up there and cry. <laughs> we would cry because, you know, we didn't know where we were going from there. In a city full of nightclubs, Rosetta's talent was soon noticed. She was offered a spot at the prestigious Cotton Club, singing to an upmarket white audience. But the song she was given by the men in charge made no mention of God, just pleasing her man. Four, five, five. Four, five, It was like a bomb had dropped on gospel music when she flipped. <laughs> it, it was like, what? You know, I can't believe she, that's Sister Rosetta Tharp. She's not supposed to be singing that kind of music. Oh, she was criticized and ostracized. I mean, the church people just, you know, just thought that she had just gone way off. a lot of people because they felt as though they had lost something. They had something and it was great, but now it's gone. And they, they viewed it almost like a death. You know, Rosetta is, she's gone. She went over. She's in like another world. But having discovered that she loved God and nightclubs, Rosetta decided to sing gospel in church and join the secular world of show business. No longer the good little girl from church, she was happy to defy convention. The offers poured in. She was wanted by all the big bands of the day. She decided to go with the band leader, Lucky Millinder, and manager, Mo Gale. In October 1938, she signed a contract with Decca Records, which was keen to capitalize on the novelty of a gospel singer with a racy new style. This was not the path that her devoted mother, Katie Bell, had chosen, but she stuck by her daughter. Now, won't you hear me singing Hear the words that I'm her first hit was a song called Rock Me. And the, the lyric is, Jesus hear me praying. She sang, won't you hear me praying? 
So when, when she came to the chorus, when she sang, rock me, and growled, rock, it sounded really, to many people, like uh, an invitation, and not to the altar. Recording the song in that particular way marked her as someone who was having the nerve to reinterpret a spiritual song for a secular audience. I think there was also a piece of her that was just rebellious. She does some very risque material with Lucky Millinder, most notably a song called Tall Skinny Papa, which was a big hit for Millinder's band, and she was the lead singer on that. And she sings, I want a tall skinny papa. There's no way of <laughs> misinterpreting I want a tall skinny papa for anything that has to do with um, spirituality. The next thing I heard was this recording out a Rosetta with the tall, skinny papa. So I said, it can't be Rosetta. So I went and bought the record. And after I listened to it, I said, oh my goodness, sister's out there singing that stuff. So when I I saw her, I said, sister, I heard you tell Lucky Melinda that you weren't going to sing that stuff. She said, when I saw that contract, he had a clause in there that I had to sing whatever he gave me to sing. She said, and I didn't know it. And I had a seven-year contract with him. She said, and I had to do it. It's unclear, I think, how much agency she had in making a recording like Tall Skinny Papa. Uh, she was under contractual obligations to Lucky Millinder. She's a young woman without a lot of experience um, in show business. She may not have been very comfortable with that material. Nevertheless, it's on record, and it was big hit. Following the controversy of Tall Skinny Papa, Rosetta resolved to stick with the songs she knew best, gospel songs, while giving them her unique, upbeat interpretation. She had hit the big time. Her loyal followers back in the church got over the shock and stayed with her, while she gained new fans who just loved her music. It was not an easy trick to pull off, but somehow she did it. She could go there and come back anytime she wanted to because people loved her and they loved her no matter what she sang. They loved her. By the age of 25, Rosetta was rated among the finest popular musicians of the day. 
Here she is jamming with Duke Ellington at the piano and Cap Calloway on the right. I can't sit down because I just got to heaven and I can't sit down. In less than five years, she had established herself in a tough male-dominated industry, singing the songs she chose to sing in her own distinctive way. Who's that yonder dressed in white? She was rich, she was famous, and she was loved by her fans. She was gospel's first superstar. She used to sing this song called The Fishes in Three Loaves of Bread. And every, anywhere you went down in the South, it was on the radio. That was a big hit. Throughout the 40s, she spent much of her time on the road, playing to packed houses, accompanied by different gospel quartets. The Dixie Hummingbirds started with Sister Rosetta in the 40s. They never made records together, but they toured. And uh, Sister Rosetta was always the headliner because it was her show, and she had the choices of picking who she wanted to go out with her. And for many years, she chose the Dixie Hummingbirds. It was a very good mix. Uh, people enjoyed the styles because her style was kind of fiery with the guitar, and uh, the hummingbirds would come out, and then uh, they would jump down in the audience and start singing and, and really relating to the people. So it was a good mix, and promoters loved it because it always filled houses. Sometimes we do things we've never done, just playing, just playing around with it until you go, that sounds good. Let's try that again. And that's the way we created a lot of stuff, you know. In a highly segregated society, black and white musicians performing together was taboo. However, Rosetta was happy to defy convention. She was more or less a pioneer in asking us to even perform with her. She called us her, her four little white babies. And I thought it was so cute that, you know, that she referred to us as that, as, as that way. I thought that was just something I'll never forget. And we just loved to sing with her because when she started snapping her finger, man, and started singing on a tune, you couldn't help but sing. I know the first time we worked with her, they, they booked us. We went, to the, we went to the stage door, and some man came to the door, and, uh, and we, one of us said, well, we are, we are the Jordanaires. And he said, hmm, you, you are the Jordanaires? Well, he said, this is going to be a surprise to our audience. Sister Rosetta didn't tell him that we were white. <laughs> she booked us, but she didn't tell him we were white. And it, it, when we first went out on the stage, they didn't really know how to take us, but then we started singing, working on the building. And then on then we were in. Listen, everybody, to the precious word. I'm going to do some chirping, and I ain't no bird. Throughout World War II, America's segregated black soldiers not only adored Rosetta, but could claim her as one of their own. And now we want you all cats to brush up your fur and be seated 
Why, we dish out a dinner at a dig down dante right out from under auntie. And here's a gal who's going to do the chirping for you. Sister Rose out of farm. Sister Tharp, say hello to Joe way, way out there. Hello, Joe, way, way out there. <laughs> and what are you going to sing, sister? Down by the riverside. No films of Rosetta performing traditional gospel songs during the 40s exist today. But this 60s television recording captures the powerful stage presence and unique guitar style that she had developed back in her heyday. Everything she had learned from her mother, everything she had learned from growing up in the sanctified church had stayed with her. She was mesmerizing. My sister and I thought she was the greatest because we had never met a popular singer, only gospel singers. And we saw Rosetta Thorpe playing the guitar and singing. We thought that was the greatest thing we had ever seen in our lives. The audiences that Sister Rosetta performed in front of were average people. They were people who worked, people who were trying to better themselves, and this music was their inspiration. So when it came to a show that brought in people like Rosetta Tharp, and there were lines three or four times around the block. Just to call her name, people would go crazy. And the people just really loved her. All she had to do was walk out on stage, but they knew they were going to get a good performance. And before she left there, the public was part of her, and she was part of the public. And it was like family. Rosella had a one-on-one -on -one with everybody. I mean, there could be eight, 900,000 people but she had a one-on-one -on -one with you because she could make that music and make that guitar talk just like, like you were there with her, like you helped to write the song. I want to meet all of my brothers. Don't you know? hit in Rosetta's entire career was Strange Things Happening Every Day, a song that reflected some of the stark contradictions of the times. All we hear church people sing, they are in this holy way, there are strange things happening every day. 
It was recorded at the end of the war, when prosperity and freedom were being proclaimed as the right of all Americans. The song expressed some of the sad ironies she was experiencing on the road. She was a star, but she was also black. Every day. Sister Rosetta had a bus. She was the first person that ever had a bus with her name on the side of it that I knew. The back section was beds to sleep in. And that was always uh, something that I thought was really very unusual. We couldn't stay in some hotel. We had to sleep on the bus. So the bus was really a good idea. Being on the road with Sister Rosetta was very exciting because sometimes we met opposition and sometimes we met gladness. Food and, and hotels, restaurants, all of this, were, they were all the same. Uh, water fountains, bathrooms, everything was segregated. They had to, as my father used to say, make do. Jesus is the holy light, training darkness in We would go in and eat, and we knew that she didn't have food on the bus, you know, or maybe she had crackers or cheese or, you know, peanut butter or something like that. But uh, we would, we would go, we would take what we ordered, we would get her the same thing and uh, and take it to her. Oh, every day. Every day. Yes, every day. Sometimes you found someone that took a chance and said, come around to the back door and they would serve us. But uh, we had to bring it back to the bus still. We couldn't eat it there. By the age of 30, Rosetta had survived two brief and unhappy marriages and had had numerous affairs with men and women. The only constant person in her life was still her mother, Katie Bell. However, in the spring of 1946, she encountered a young singer called Marie Knight. She was so impressed by her, she suggested they team up. And together, they recorded a hugely popular version of the gospel classic, Up Above My Head. One of the things that made Marie and Rosetta so special as performers is that they were two women who could go on the road without any accompaniment but themselves. Marie was a piano player and percussion player. Um, Rosetta performed on the piano as well as the guitar. And so the two of them together had their entire band with them. In 1950, 
while Rosetta and Marie were performing in California. Marie's mother and two small children were killed in a fire. Traumatized by the loss, Marie drifted away, leaving Rosetta to carry on alone. Less than a year after breaking up with Marie, Rosetta took the most outrageous decision of her life when two concert promoters came up with an audacious publicity stunt. Their plan was to stage Rosetta's third wedding in Washington's huge Griffiths Stadium. They would sell tickets to her fans and the recording rights to Decker. Rosetta agreed to go along with the plan. But there was just one problem. She had no one in mind to marry. But just weeks before the big day, she found Russell Morrison, a minor player in the music industry who offered to be both her third husband and her manager. Tell the truth, I was surprised when she said she was getting married <laughs> and Russell was going to be the groom. <laughs> so she records uh, her wedding ceremony and a concert that follows it in 1951. 25,000 people come out and pay admission prices to attend her wedding. They bring wedding gifts for her, they bring crystals, they bring um, dishes for her, someone even buys her a television set. It's a total showbiz move. And at the same time, it's a, it's a wedding ceremony um, conducted by a minister, a real wedding ceremony. Rosetta was standing on the pitcher's mound and they had everybody around her and all of the matrons of honor and all these other people who were probably folks that the promoters got together. But they were all there and, and it, was, it was just a wonderful, wonderful show. I'd like to take this opportunity to welcome you to Griffith Stadium where you're about to be guests at the wedding of Sister Rosetta Tharp after which there'll be a great spiritual concert followed by fireworks. And it was nice to see that a lot of her friends had stuck with her and were part of the wedding party. Lucky Millinder is there, Marie Knight is there, and the Rosettes are there. That stadium was packed. You know, somebody said it's a fake. It was packed. I don't see how they could get anybody else in. It was like a circus. <laughs> Rosetta, will you have this man to be thy wedded husband? To live after God's audience in the holy states of a matrimony? I mean, it, it resonated throughout the entire country. Every, it was in newspapers, people talked about it. My parents were so excited about it. They were, I mean, for a month in my house before that wedding was just crazy. Take him by his right hand, Rosetta. Hold it. I, Rosetta, I, Rosetta, take thee, Russell, from our it was, it was like, um, she was Cinderella, you know, and Russell was Prince Charming, and it was a storybook thing. Kiss the bride, man and wife. I didn't go to sister's wedding to Russell. I just figured it was a, an, another something that she had gotten herself into. 
after meeting Russell, I figured that he just wanted an easy living. And I said to myself, oh my goodness, she's doing it again. <laughs> so high, can't get over him. So low, so low, he can't get out of him. So high, Sadly, the misgivings shared by Rosetta's friends proved all too accurate. While the wedding did boost her record sales briefly, Russell, the manager, was out of his depth. Russell just, like a cool breeze, just came right in, took over. He wasn't, a, he wasn't really a manager. He, he thought it was a manager. And of course, so many times when they think they are, they aren't. And uh, that's bad. It was very clear that he was living off her talent. And it was very clear that he was two-timing her. Many people, especially people close to her, like Marie Knight, were furious with him. In spite of all the criticism, Rosetta remained married to Russell for the next 22 years. Meanwhile, back in the Mississippi Delta of Rosetta's childhood, young white musicians were just beginning to discover the raw energy and complex rhythms of African-American gospel. There was a hip thing happening in Memphis at that time. There was a little church and it was cool, it was a cool thing to do on Sunday nights only. You would go there, and there would be Elvis and some of the other guys from the area, and it was unusual because back in those days, white people had to sit in the back, and it was roped off. And we would sit back there, and we would watch these black spiritual singers sing on Sunday night. Of course, this was the music that Sister Rosetta had brought out of the church and into the wider world nearly 20 years earlier. The thing that gospel spiritual music brought to popular music was feeling. Gospel spiritual music put the guts and the feeling and the real soul into it. And uh, people like Elvis and Johnny Cash and Jerry Lewis and Carl Perkins and those guys, Buddy Holly, if you will, they saw that. And they adapted to that, and that really was the essence of rock and roll. Thinking about it, Sister Rosetta Thorpe, she had this great feeling, and that's what Elvis was looking for, feeling, because that's, what was, that's where it all came from. She gave a lot of people ideas of how to perform. She, uh, the way she performed a song, the way she picked a song, the way she presented it was, uh, was an inspiration to anybody who, who stood around and watched her. And they all watched her. By the early 60s, her influence was continuing to spread as yet another generation fell under her spell. Here is a recording of Bob Dylan speaking about Rosetta on the radio. Sister Rosetta Thorpe was anything but ordinary and plain. She was a big, good-looking woman and divine, not to mention sublime and splendid. She was a powerful force of nature, a guitar-playing, singing evangelist. It's a clean 
one train. Everybody ride it if you can. You know, she traveled to England with Muddy Waters and a whole bunch of other blues performers in the early 60s. And I'm sure there are a lot of young English guys who picked up an electric guitar after getting a look at her. It's standing in the station. This train is waiting on all of you. Come on and let's go. This train. In the summer of 1964, Rosetta was booked by Granada Television to perform in a folk, blues, and gospel special. The musicians were American, the audience English students, the venue, a disused railway station, Chalton Come Hardy, just outside Manchester. The Manchester gig was a curiosity in the middle of the tour for us. It was kind of bizarre, but you know, we were all new to England and we were aware of all this interest in blues and gospel. We all thought it was strange, the setup with the audience on one platform and the musicians on the other. And she rose to the occasion. She loved the drama of the situation and trying to bridge that gap between the platforms and sell the whole thing across the, the track to the audience. By now, Rosetta was 49 years old and she had been on the road for more than 40 of those years. But even in cold, wet and windy England, the magic was still there. I take great pleasure and bring it to you, one of the greatest, one of the world's greatest gospel singers and guitar virtuoso, the inimitable Sister Rosetta Thorpe. Oh, the sweet horsey. Oh, this is the wonderful time of my life. And the people are so sweet to say oh, And I come in on them. Yeah. Let me tell you what I come in on. Oh, yeah.
mind, my friend. The angel's got the key and you can't get in. I know it's rain. You know it's rain. Rain too long. I'm not dumb. Rain all day. Rain all night. Didn't it just, didn't it, you know it did or didn't it? Oh, my Lord, how it rains! Citrosetta was a huge success in the tour. I mean, she did great. Audiences loved her. She was very happy. Everybody was happy. Oh, I love you so, my English friends, forever and ever until I leave this world. While Rosetta was away in Europe, her mother was becoming increasingly frail. In 1968, Katie Bell died. For 53 years, she had stuck close by her daughter, through good times and bad, as the one constant figure reminding Rosetta of her faith in God. The loss took a heavy toll on Rosetta. She became increasingly depressed, and to make matters worse, she was diagnosed with diabetes. I'm going to sing a song that maybe you wouldn't understand it, and maybe you do. A song that I love so dearly, and I have so many friends here in Copenhagen for many, many years have been coming here. And then sometime my friends... Made in 1970 in Denmark, this is the last known recording of Sister Rosetta performing. Maybe you wouldn't understand that, but someone died who they dearly love. And mine did too. My mother died two years ago left me alone but nevertheless I have you I went to see her and she had this black spot on her foot I said sister what is that and she said I don't know I said sister go see about that please that's gonna happen but there is a divine power I believe it I don't know about you but I got to believe it because I was raised that way I sing this song. Just Lord, take my hand, lead me on, and let me stand. I'm tired. You don't work so hard. And I'm weak My body is worn Oh, 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 oh yes But I got to go anyhow Through the storm She wouldn't listen to anybody So the next thing Foot started turning black Then she did have to go to the doctor Then they found out they had to cut a leg off just the same. Sometimes she would call me and say, Sister, please come. Please come to see me. 
And I would say, all right, I'm coming. But the last few months I didn't go because, you know, Russell was acting like he didn't want nobody taking over from him. When I went over to see her and said she was in the bed and she would, and she, she would say, where's Russell? I said, downstairs. And she would say, he's asking you about shows, right? And I said, no, he didn't say anything. He said, yes, he is. He, he wants to know if I'm going back. She said, and I'm going back. But I'm not going to tell anybody when I'm coming back. But I am coming back. But she never did. My body is all suffering in pain. Whoa, yeah. I got no one to call on. Hear my cry. Hear my call Please hold my hand Lest I fall mm-hmm. Take my hand Oh, precious Lord Lead me on Will said his funeral was very quiet it wasn't any big thing. It was no elaborate funeral, I can tell you that. The church was half full, and Rosetta looked the best I had seen her in years. Marie Knight, her old partner, she made Rosetta up. She took care of her coiffure, of her makeup, of, of how the fabrics looked, and made her as glamorous as possible. She looked a star. I think I said she would sing until you cried. And then she would sing until you danced for joy. She kept the church alive and the saints rejoicing. In 2008, some 35 years after Rosetta's death, the governor of Pennsylvania declared that henceforth the 11th of January will be known as Sister Rosetta Tharp Day.
Sister Rosetta Tharp, and that's going to conclude our program uh, for today. If you'd like to log on, go to the Pan-African Radio Network at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll close out with Wes Montgomery at the BBC in 1965. This is Abayomi Azikawe signing off, and have a beautiful week. Jazz musicians have only to make a couple of records or sit in on a few jam sessions to be hailed as new discoveries. Well, with our star guest on Jazz 625 tonight, exactly the opposite happened. For many years, he was virtually unknown to the wide jazz public. And then, five years ago, came not only recognition, but also acceptance as one of the masters of his instrument, the jazz guitar. The name is Wes Montgomery. Yeah. With him, making up the members of his quartet are on piano, someone who uh, was quite recently in Miles Davis's band, and before that with Lionel Hampton, Harold Mayburn. <laughs> on bass, the young man who's made several albums with J.J. Johnson quite recently, Arthur Harper. And on drums, a new name in, to, to British jazz fans, someone who comes from the West Coast of America and who will be known to jazz fans in the future, I'm quite sure, Jimmy Lovelace. <laughs> well, that's the West Montgomery Quartet, and now their first number, Jerome Kern's Yesterdays. <laughs> Thank you. 
West Montgomery original called Jingles. Wes is a, is a self-taught musician, but if you think that a self-taught musician is in any way a faulty or incomplete musician, take the opportunity of looking in close-up at the fantastic thumb technique which he's evolved. This is, uh, so far as I know, a, a unique technique, and it's one which makes even classically trained guitarists boggle, and they don't boggle too easily. Uh, over to the quartet now for... Uh, for a, a classic of modern jazz, Thelonious Monk's Round Midnight. Thank mm -hmm. you. 